This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including Adam Rutherford's Creation, How Science is Reinventing Life Itself, and Mario Livio's Brilliant Blunders, From Darwin to Einstein, Colossal Mistakes by Great Scientists That Changed Our Understanding of Life in the Universe. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on August 29th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode, we finish up our conversation with Adam Rutherford about his new book, Creation, How Science is Reinventing Life Itself. In part one, we talked about efforts to understand how life first came into being on Earth. Next, we talked about efforts to design and even create new forms of life. We spoke by phone on July 25th. Let's talk about the second part of the book. If the first part of the book disturbs some people, the second part is probably going to make even more people uncomfortable. Well, you mean because I choose to start with uh, a really fascinating chimera, the spider goat. Yes, which some people find this sort of thing really upsetting. I think it's great, but, you know, I I also have told people how, you know, I'm mostly a fish, so this kind of thing doesn't really bother me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the... So I should, I should say what the spider goat is. So spider, spider goats, um, which isn't even that new technology, but this is, this is based in a, um, a farm lab from the University of Utah down in, in Logan, uh, in Utah. And what they've done is they've engineered some goats. They've, they've genetically modified them so that they have a gene that encodes spider silk from the golden orb weaver spider, dragline silk, which is the one that the spiders use when they swing. And they've engineered that gene into, into the goat. Freckles was the name of the goat, such that when the goat starts to lactate, produce milk, that also prompts the production of, uh, of, of these, these threads of, of spider silk. And so you take the milk, you milk the goat, you take the milk, um, process it just to remove the fats really. And, and basically that's it. You then can lift out spider silk from, from the goat's milk. So immediately the question is, well, why the hell would you do that? Um, and the answer is really because this is, farming this is what we've been doing for 10,000 years in a, in a sense you can't farm spiders directly because they're cannibalistic but spider silk is a really interesting material it has such high tensile and elastic strength that it would be really useful for us to pr- be able to produce in bulk quantities so what we do with farming is we breed organisms so that they we, we enhance their ability to produce things that we want. And that's what we've been doing for 10,000 years. Yeah, you point out in the book there's no such thing in nature as a, a Frisian cow or a, what is it, a Savoy cabbage either. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In fact, I, was, I, was, I spent quite a lot of time thinking if there's anything that we eat at all that could genuinely be considered natural. And I, I couldn't really think of any. You know, when I, when I, when I drive around the countryside in the UK and, and think about how beautiful the landscape is, how green and lush it is, even that is an entirely human designed landscape. There are almost no parts of the UK that are, that could be genuinely considered to be wild. And I think, I think it's less, less the case in the States, but you know, if anyone does a daytime flyover from the East Coast to the West Coast, you can see quite how designed um, that great country is just by the shape of the 
There's the agriculture. A lot of rectangles. A lot of rectangles and, and those weird round ones as well. <laughs> yeah. But you've got to go quite far on Earth to find a place which hasn't been profoundly affected and designed by our interaction with the environment. So, you know, apples are d- delicious because we bred them to be like that. Y- y- we've been talking about creationists. The, everyone loves the, uh, the, the banana creationist idea that, uh, you know, only, only a deity would, uh, create something as, as delicious as that. Well, we know that's not true for a number of reasons, but mostly because if you look at a naturally occurring wild banana, they're stumpy, full of seeds and totally inedible. Yeah, they'll break your teeth. Exactly. And bananas have been designed by a, 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 a supreme power. And that supreme power is banana farmers, right? So, my argument about the spider goat is is that um, this is a way, just like we've been doing for the last 10,000 years, but in a more advanced and molecular level, this is a way of uh, interacting with naturally occurring things in order to make things that we find useful. And like I said, it's, you know, freckles, the spider goat is, is um, just a very visible example of genetic modification because it's a, m- most happens in bacteria, but whereas this this is something you can really see and, and and feel and it is it is it's very striking uh tell us about bio bricks yeah yeah i love i'd love this i love i, I love this idea so this is a um about, about about seven or eight years ago some of the people involved in this this new form of genetic modification that became known as synthetic biology identified one of the problems which is that genetic modification is an artisan skill, right? So I spent three years doing this for my PhD, doing a relatively simple form of, of genetic engineering. And it took a lot of, a lot of effort and a lot of skill and a lot of, you know, getting it wrong in order ultimately that it didn't work. Okay. Um, so w- what that means is that the entry level for doing skillful genetic modification and manipulation is very high. Now, they identified this as a problem if you want this field to expand and grow. And so what they did is is they effectively modeled what had happened in electrical engineering many, many decades ago, which is to standardize the parts so that every time you need a diode or a transistor or something like that, you don't have to invent that for for the first time. You just go to... um, the electrical engineering shop and buy a diode and you know it's going to fit. Um, you know, the opposite problem is if anyone, any of your listeners travel and they need a different damn plug socket adapter for every single country because they're not standardized. So in genetic engineering, what Biobricks, the Biobricks Foundation did is, is set up this repository where they would try and standardize and characterize all of these elements of DNA, which were either genes or the bits that control genes and have them available so that anyone could use them. So you don't have to be a genetic engineer to do genetic engineering. So they, they call them bio bricks because they're kind of like Lego in that sense. Every Lego brick is precisely designed so that it will fit every other Lego brick perfectly. So that was the idea. And uh, we're beginning to see the fruits of, of the bio brick endeavor, um, uh, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, the, 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 I think again, the high point was this, this, um, this sort of cancer assassin circuit that came out of Ron Weiss's lab in, um, MIT, where they've taken a very complex set of bio bricks and put them together in such a way that, and put, inserted them into a virus, but a benign virus. So when the virus enters a cell, 
it effectively makes a calculation. It asks the cell five questions and makes a, a Boolean calculation. And if the answer to all of those five questions is uh, positive, then it has correctly identified that that cell is a type of cancer cell, the HALAR cancer cell. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners will know about HALAR cells from the brilliant book by Rebecca Sklut about Henrietta Lacks, right? And when when it does correctly identify this as a HALAR cell, it then instigates the cell's cell death program. So it asks the cell to commit suicide. And it's a, it, this is only happening in cell culture at the moment, so it's a long way from the clinic. But if you think about the potential for that as a treatment for cancer, it's breathtaking. When we use radiotherapy and chemotherapy, the you kill many, many healthy cells as well as the tumorous ones. Whereas this is a this is a way of dealing with cancer that will only and specifically with apparently 100% accuracy, it will only attack the cells that are known to be cancerous. So it's much more like a, the, the analogy I use is chemotherapy is kind of like a blunderbuss and, um, and this technique is like a sniper. Right. And, uh, just to go back to the goats for a second, the, the fact that you can take a gene from a spider and insert it into a goat and it works pretty much just fine. Even after 700, what is it? It's about 700 million years of, Separation, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between the the uh, the last, you know, from the last common ancestor of those two organisms, tells us so much about DNA and and how conserved it is, and about the fact that there really is one tree of life on Earth. Yeah, that's that's kind of the link between the two halves of the book, really, because it's uh, um, it is exactly the fact that we have this shared biology with all organisms because we're on this one tree of life because we're all evolved from a single cell four billion years ago that we can do this and it was only in the 70s that we invented this technology that you know farming has been limited for the last 10,000 years to mating two organisms that basically are capable of having sex with each other Um, and with the advent of genetic modification we have breach the species barrier we've we've you know obviously a spider and a goat can't have sex with each other but they have the same underlying language that encodes them and the cell the engineered cell is oblivious to what species it comes from it doesn't care what it does is it reads the code and in the case of the spider goat it reads the code which says produce milk here oh and produce this protein here which is spider silk there you go it's done it's, uh, I mean bacteria can carry on lateral gene transfer where they just you know basically do a transgenic modification of each other and and we have finally figured out how to do that at the multicellular level yeah yeah that that's that's right i think um uh yeah, yeah. i mean that's that's the, the the way that bacteria do that is basically the reason why they are they are the dominant the dominant type of organism on earth that we don't really um we, we don't pay enough attention to but they've been around for four billion years and show no sign of uh of going of going extinct and we're utterly dependent on them. But a, a lot of that is to do with the fact that they don't have to pass their genes from parent to child. They can actually pass very useful genes from, from uh, siblings. Uh, and, and that's, of course, the reason why we have uh, um, uh, superbugs in hospitals, that they evolve very quickly. And as soon as you establish, as soon as a, a bacteria emerges that is resistant to whatever, whatever antibiotic we're treating with them, they can pass on that resistance very quickly. Whereas 
all other species that can't do that have to wait until they actually have children. Um, so yes, we should all, all bow down to our bacterial overlords. Um, there's a, there's another, uh, fascinating discussion in the second part of the book. Let me get into it by asking you to explain why the James Joyce estate was suing Craig Venter. <laughs> yes, yes. So th- this, this is, um, I guess synthetic biology really hit the headlines for the first time in 2010 when Craig Venter, who many of you know, is, is a sort of big figure in the world of genetics. He's a, an amazing scientist, um, but also very good at, at, at sort of getting his message out there, very good at the PR side of things. And they, they published the, uh, this, this paper back in 2010 in which, which was effectively the first cell whose parent was not another cell. Um, so w- w- what it was, they took a, uh, they took a, a pathogen from a goat, a small, a bacteria with a very small genome and they sequenced that genome and then they got a, uh, a computer and a DNA synthesizer to, uh, reproduce, to manufacture that, that genome artificially. And then they inserted it into the chassis of another closely related cell and booted it up. And all of a sudden you've got a life, a cell, a living cell, which reproduced that didn't come directly from another cell. In order to demonstrate that the, the DNA they put in there was definitely theirs and, and not naturally occurring, they put in a series of um, of Easter eggs. Gamers call them Easter eggs. They're, you know, little, little secrets hidden within the game, which are there for fun, basically, uh, or, or inventor's case, to show just how how sophisticated our ability to manipulate DNA has become. And there were basically three. There was the, the, the names and addresses of, uh, of all of the people that had worked on it. There was a code that explained how the code actually works. This is still written in DNA, but just encoded in a completely different way. And the third one was three quotations. So, so apposite quotations, hubristic, you might say, a little bit pretentious. One might say, I'm not saying that, but you might say that. And one of them was from Robert Oppenheimer. Um, the so-called father of the bomb, the atomic bomb. And, uh, one was the brilliant quotation from Richard Feynman, everyone's favorite, uh, bongo playing physicist, which was, um, what I cannot create, I cannot, no, when I cannot build, I cannot understand. And the third one was from James Joyce. Now, from Portrait of the Artist, uh, a beautiful quotation, but the kind of funny thing about the last two is that what I just said, the, the Feynman quote, what I cannot build, I cannot understand, was wrong. That isn't what Feynman said. He actually said, um, what I cannot create, I do not understand. Now, he wasn't a, weren't a long way off, but in, you know, in, in genetics terms, accuracy is important. Changing one letter of DNA can be the difference between being healthy and being dead. Yeah, this should be a lethal mutation. <laughs> exactly. I did actually, I called them up. I called up the Craig Venter Institute and said, uh, what happened there? And I got a rather curt response, uh, which said, someone looked it up on the internet, full stop. <laughs> yeah. You would think before immortalizing the thing in a, in a life form, you might double check. Just check. Oh dear. It did make me laugh when that happened. Um, and the second thing, which is, I think equally funny is that, um, they use this quotation from portrait of the artist as a young man. And after about a week, a week after publication, someone had cracked the code. They didn't announce that it was in there, but so, so it became a bit of a game for, for, 
uh, genetics geeks to try and crack it. And, and, you know, after a few days, it was cracked. And as soon as it was cracked, the James Joyce estate issued a cease and desist letter because they claimed the copyright was, uh, that was, was still imposed on this quotation and, and that Craig Venter, this, this bacteria was breaching copyright. Uh, and it actually turned out that it wasn't, it was out of copyright, but it's still, uh, it's just still kind of makes me laugh that, uh, you know, someone in the Craig Venter Institute must have been seriously kicking themselves that day. <laughs> Especially if the, uh, if any penalty was, going to be determined by number of copies in print <laughs> within a few hours they could have owed quite a lot of money yeah absolutely although although i think one of the interesting things about venter's experiment is that it was well two things really one, one is that it was a lot harder than they thought and so while we can be a little bit hubristic about our ability to manipulate life it actually took about 40 million dollars in about 12 years Right. So much, much harder than we thought it was going to be. So when, you know, we're, we're doing this stuff, but it's still, still really hard. And the second thing is the, the bug that they ended up with wasn't very healthy. You know, it just, it wasn't, it, 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 it would have been outcompeted in, you know, minutes probably in, in a natural environment. And so it showed that, you know, one, one of the principles was the reason they used such a small genome is that they were, they were looking at the fewest number of genes possible that an organism could have in order to survive, not least to, to because that makes it easier to recreate, but also so that the, the overall project that Vent is engaged in here is to have a sort of um, a template genome, a basic living thing on which you can add functions, add specific functions for engineering purposes. Right. Um, but it, you know, it did, it wasn't particularly healthy. It, it, it wasn't like, you know, a vibrant thing that was going to grow out of, uh, of a pet tradition, take over the world. It was, it was a pretty sickly bug. And the spider silk from the goat's milk is not quite up to the standards of the silk that comes from the actual spiders. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the, the tensile strength is lower and the elasticity is lower and they can't quite get the threads as long as a spider can do. But then again, you know, spiders have had about five million, uh, no, 500 million year advantage on us, uh, in terms of evolving that, uh, that ability. So it's, that's perhaps not, not surprising that we, we're not quite there yet. Not surprising, maybe even a little reassuring. Absolutely. So, so, uh, Leslie Orgel, who was a, a, a very important chemist in the, who died in the eighties, I think he's his second law has become known as um evolution is cleverer than you and i think it's i think it's something that everyone in our our line of work um chemistry biochemistry biology genetic engineering everyone should always always remember orgel's second rule i don't think i'm uh, giving anything away by discussing the the ending of of the book this is just before the the afterword which is also well worth reading but the end of the book talks about the squeamishness of some people and the, in the questions about, you know, should we be doing this? Shouldn't we be doing this? And your response is, I think we have to be doing it. Um, I, th I think that, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, but primarily because we are looking at engineering solutions to some of the biggest crises that humanity and this planet faces including feeding the ever-increasing population, which is going to be, become more and more po problematic as, as it grows. Um, in terms of climate change, dealing with the fact that 
that um, the way, our ways of producing fossil fuels and indeed our use of fossil fuels is obviously extremely damaging to our, our, ex, our, our continued life on Earth. Uh, to the way we distribute and manufacture medicines, we're just at a stage where we are basically inventing new technologies that are going to be a serious part of addressing all of these things, all of our relationship between ourselves, each other, and, and the planet. And so while some, while, while some of these things, like the spider goat, like we, like we talked, that's a bit weird. Like many of these things feel a bit weird and possibly a bit wrong and generate a visceral reaction in people, which is very emotive. I think we need to get over that, have sensible, mature, informed conversations in, in public between government, between scientists, between policymakers and, and, and citizens and crucially citizens in such a way that we can choose sensibly what technologies we invest in and invent in order that we get the best out of them. And I think many, in many examples, these conversations have been massively hamstrung in the past. There's an interesting difference between this country, the UK and, and yours when it comes to genetically modified food, where we have none. There are no genetically modified, um, ingredients in the, in the food chain in Europe because that discussion never happened. Um, in the early eighties or, or, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, it was won very quickly by people who opposed genetic modification ideologically. And as a result of that, I haven't, I have never eaten anything which has genetic modification in it. Now it's what, what is it? It's uh, midday in New York for you. You've probably had some, you consumed some genetically modified products already today twice. I think that something like 70% of foodstuffs in the States contains, um, GM ingredients at some point in their generation. As a, as an experiment on whether they cause harm, I think, uh, there have been something like, I think it's like 12 trillion meals consumed containing GM foods in the States in the last couple of years or something, something like that. And there is no, there is simply no evidence that eating genetically modified uh, crops causes harm. So that as an argument in which, which is made as an argument in the UK and Europe is clearly nonsense. In, interestingly, in the last couple of months in the UK, the government has begun to make statements that I think that, that basically saying we need to address this. We, we need to, um, stop pratting around and actually seriously address whether GM crops are things that we should have. And, you know, my, my stance is, is it is an opinion. Um, but I hope that it's an opinion based on, based on the evidence. And, and I think that's, that, that was one of the motivations for writing the book, just that this conversation can happen in public sensibly so that we can all make progress. We'll be right back after this word from Kerry Smith at the Nature Podcast. On the Nature Podcast this week, tearing apart space-time, growing a brain in the lab, metaphor in science, and a climate conundrum. More at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Remember, you can get Adam Rutherford's new book, Creation, How Science is Reinventing Life Itself, as your free audiobook by taking advantage of the offer at www.audible.com slash Siam. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, 
And check out the collection of Scientific American eBooks available for Kindle, Nook, and iBooks. You can find them by going to our website, then clicking on Products on the right near the top, and then on Scientific American eBooks. Just $3.99 wherever fine books are downloaded. That's less than you'll pay today on something that costs more than $3.99. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 